this special report. Neil Armstrong may have seen extraterrestrials on the moon. When he spies a discernible shape. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. You can deny all the things I've seen. All the things I've discovered, but not for much longer. Because too many others know what's happening out there. And no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Welcome, everybody, to Off the Beaten Path. My name is Rob Yox. Uh, we are brought to you by Full Spectrum Universe and Appalachian Memes. This is the first episode, episode one of Off the Beaten Path. And I'm super excited to be here. I was asked to do a show on Appalachian Memes discussing the histories, the cultures, the legends, the myths, anything that goes bump in the night, as well as exploring the society that is Appalachia. And we are going to do that on this show every time we're on. And we're also going to be discussing things that are outside of Appalachia, but that are directly related to Appalachia. So one of the things I want to do first is introduce myself. My name is Rob Yox. I am a historian, a researcher, an investigator, and I'm also an international speaker. We do many events all over the place. Hello, Banjo. How are you? And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do was I want to first talk about what Appalachia means to the United States. When they first basically established the first 13 colonies, Appalachia was seen as the door to the West. And what that meant was people who came here via other cultures, of course, we were a melting pot, they went into Appalachia to settle for farms. They also did it because they were not so much in the center or the cities of the United States, and they could live their life according to their, you know, uh, their edicts and not have to follow rules. But one of the things that happens now is this culture is so diverse and it's such a melting pot, and there's so many stories so many stories that we're going to get into. We're going to get into different cultures that are long gone now, uh, the, some of the roots of what Appalachia is. And what I thought was when I did this, that this would be an homage to our ancestors, to the people of Appalachia, to explore how rich that history is. So without further ado, I again, I'm Rob Yox. I am the host of Full Spectrum Universe, and I'm also the host of Off the Beaten Path. Some days we're going to be doing deep dives like today into cultural histories, word of mouth, oral traditions and legends. And other days we're going to bring in experts of Appalachia who are going to be here to talk about their experience living here. And we're, like I say, we're going to explore all aspects of culture while we do our that we do have like a general census of things that go bump in the night. We're also going to be looking at the many facets that society has to offer living in this region. So this first episode is going to be one of my favorite because this is a lot of the stuff that I get into investigations wise and investigations wise is it's really what I do. So we decided to do off the beaten path. And I'm sure some of you recognize the icons in this poster mountain myths, monsters and legends and i want to thank all of you first and foremost for joining me tonight uh we're going to dive right into this and i have pictures to go along with what i'm talking about but first 
I want to go for a little bit of a synopsis of what we're going to talk about. You know, it's not surprising that a 480 million year old mountain range would inspire legends, unexplained animals darting through the darkened forest or strange and ghostly apparitions appearing in the night sky. For generations, myths and superstitions have been passed down through oral traditions, native tribes and early settlers getting a foothold in our Appalachian culture. From scholars believing that the danger and the isolation in the early mountain life gave birth to many of these legends, that still exists today, banging around in our brains and compelling us to take an extra look over our shoulder should we find ourselves alone in a dusky forest or a creaky cabin. Some of the people that, we, uh, that I investigated is a gentleman by the name of Michael Rivers. He is a lead investigator of Smoky Mountain Ghost Trackers. He is also an author and has written extensively extensively about Appalachian folklore. And he says that the Appalachian Mountains are ripe with paranormal activity, though it's hard to say why stories of the unexplained phenomena pop up in these mountains, rivers. They say that, you know, it all comes from the people. Your psyche has a tendency to get away from you, says Rivers. If you hear things that go bump in the night and you swear you don't have a, a, a pipe rattling or anything like that, then you think it's a spirit or you happen to catch something out of the corner of your eye and you'll swear it's a ghost. And, you know, what he talks about during this is that people believe that this comes from the people themselves. But after exploring so many different aspects of paranormal activity, ufology, there is definitely something more going on in those mountains for sure. For sure. So what we're going to do is we're going to start at the very, very top, and we're going to bring in, you know, the hide-and-seek champion of the last 200 years. You and I all know who this is, and it's Bigfoot. Bigfoot, there are stories of Bigfoot and subspecies of Bigfoot all along Appalachia, all along the Blue Mountains, everywhere. You know, of course, they go out into, you know, the other areas, but it's centrally localized to the Appalachian areas where most of most of the witness or eyewitness accounts are exhibited. And it's truly fascinating to go through some of these stories. And what we're going to do here, just before I bring that down real quick, this is sort of a general overview. And as we go on episode by episode, we're going to go into deeper dives of these of what we discussed tonight. Tonight is sort of like the glaze over the donut, right? We're not going to eat the whole donut just yet. We're just going to lick the glaze off of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to touch on all of these briefly and then work our way towards the other aspects of what it is. And then on other episodes, we're going to do deep dives into eyewitness accounts as well as so many other facets that go along with these stories, such as Bigfoot, the Brown Mountain Lights, Mothman, Moon-Eyed People. I mean, I've got everything here for us today. So first, we're going to start with the big man himself, the hide-and-seek champion, yet again. And, you know, imagine you're deep in the woods when you spot a sudden movement through the trees, right? The animal, or whatever it is, is large and covered in dark fur. Is it a bear? You stand frozen. Your eyes placed and you're locked on a shadowy spot in the wood, waiting for that animal to move. Your heart's pounding in your chest, and you're realizing that there's a jarring sound coming from the forest like somebody had died. On the ground, there's an imprint, like a human foot, but much larger, nearly two foot long and eight inches wide. Suddenly, you're certain of what you saw, and it definitely wasn't a black bear. So that's a synopsis of what 
happens. And one of the another thing I want to say before we go any further is if anybody has any eyewitnesses accounts of what we talk about tonight, please contact Appalachian Memes. There is a spot for us to bring you on the show. And if you don't want to come on the show, at least bring your your actual stories to the show, because I want this to be one of the most interactive shows between the audience and myself, because we are all students. We're all learning all the time. And it's so much fun to explore these things. So let's get back. Known around the world as Sasquatch or Yeti, and locally, the wood booger or boojum, the Bigfoot is an ape-like creature that conceals itself in the deep, dark forest, leaving behind footprints so large they could not belong to any man. The tale of Bigfoot has been traced back to the European wild man, a mythical figure that had hair all over his body and lived like a beast. The wild man can be found in literature as early as the second century's BC stories of Bigfoot are also abound in Native American oral traditions. And our an unexplained ape has been studied by science and scrutinized by the internet, right? So Jane Goodall has weighed in on Bigfoot's existence, telling reports that she wants to believe in Bigfoot is real. There is no doubt about Bigfoot's existence in Phil Simms' eyes, another gentleman. And the people that I talk about throughout this time are people that I've gone into depth of what they're talking about. And basically, they are encounters or investigators. Uh, I personally have investigated some Bigfoot uh, situations as well. So I'm using the best of, of the people within those fields to corroborate what we're talking about. So... There's no doubt about Bigfoot's existence in Phil Simms' eyes. Smith of Gate City, Virginia, is the co-founder of Blue Ridge Mountain of Blue Ridge Monsters and Legends Facebook group, where members come to see their stories and basically they talk about their unexplained encounters with the hairy bipedal. And when Smith was a boy, he says that he had run his own. He actually had his own run in with Bigfoot. And Smith says that one cold November night, he was riding his bike home after dark. When he heard a friend run up behind him, he was out of breath and anxious, Smith remembered. He said, something is following me. When I move, it moves. When I stop, it stops. Spooked, Smith took a shortcut home through his grandparents' backyard. He rode past the grapevine, and he heard something moving through the brush behind him. He turned to look. He said, I had to. And there beside the grapevine was a seven-foot creature. It was leaning forward, making a hump where its neck and back joined, Smith says. The moonlight was shining through its hair. It didn't make sound. Needless to say, I had a hasty departure home. So this is Bigfoot. And we know a lot of stories of Bigfoot. I personally have actually dealt with a lot of people in the cryptids exploration or uh, a gentleman by the name of Jeremy, who I will probably bring on the show so we can introduce him to the folks. And he is from Appalachia as well. And, you know, essentially what we're looking at is he thinks that Bigfoot can make sounds to disable you. Uh, there is a smell that happens when you get within Bigfoot. And Bigfoot will give you signals to basically let you know that it's there, but not quite come in contact with you. So Bigfoot is a mystery. We know it. Everybody knows it. And he is, like I said, the hide-and-seek champion of forever. There's so many different theories on what Bigfoot could possibly be. 
<clears throat> there's theories that he's an interdimensional being. He's able to shift in and out of reality as he feels or in and out of dimensional portals, things like that. There's so many different aspects of, and there's so much that we, you know, of the unknown. Dustin, that is a, that is a great joke. So we talked about Grapevine, and Dustin said, I heard it through the Grapevine. Hilarious, bro. That's great. But, I mean, it's it's really crazy because there's so many different subspecies of Bigfoot, too, and there's so many different names. And we can go through all of those. And I am going to take a whole episode and dedicate it to Bigfoot because truly it's fascinating. And the people that see Bigfoot truly believe in Bigfoot. In Bigfoot. And for me, myself, my whole idea of what reality is, is nothing is nothing is impossible. Right. And it's it's wild to conceptualize that there would be things out there that we don't know especially in these mountain regions that are some are cut off from everywhere else so when that when these stories come out people get very very skeptical and i think it's better to investigate with the possibility than to investigate with the with it not being a possibility therefore you're a little more open-minded when things come down the pipeline about what you're talking about so we're going to get to the next item up on the table today which is the brown lights in the mountain and i don't i'm not sure if everybody's familiar with this but this is an absolutely fascinating story absolutely fascinating so the dark skies above brown mountain north carolina eerie ghost lights have been spotted in the sky for over a century too many eyewitnesses the lights appear as glowing orbs that hover in the sky above the mountain before suddenly disappearing or soundlessly exploding. The first report cited of Brown Mountain Lights was in 1913 by a fisherman who claimed to see odd red lights dancing above the horizon. Sightings continued in the 1922 area, and the U.S. Geological Society investigated, determining that the brown lights were merely just the headlights of cars or passing trains. But as you can see by these photos, sometimes these lights are actually above the mountain, not just on the mountain, but above the mountain in the sky, right? So that that doesn't make sense. That's right off the bat. We can throw that out. So now there was a major flood in 1916 that changed that theory. The raging waters washed out roads and bridges and took out power for several weeks. But the mountain lights were still spotted in the night sky. Think about that. And you guys will see me. I sip my coffee while I do this, because talking for a straight hour will make you go hoarse, but we always have a big cup of coffee whenever we do shows like this. So now, you know, we have the brown mountain lights. The brown mountain lights, are, it, that's a wild concept. You know, and there could be anything anything that could cause these lights but a lot of people have witnessed these lights and when they witness these lights they can feel and this is going to sound a little bit new agey but they can feel that something is off and think about this the your gut or your perception of you know fight or flight is one of the most resounding emotional responses to something that you would know if something's not right. Or when you walk into a place and there's all eyes are on you, your psyche, you can tell that something is not is off or not right. 
So going with your gut is one of the best ways to discern a situation, right? And ultimately, when these people say that they see these brown lights and something just isn't right, it brings sort of a paranormal aspect to it or a, uh, a supernatural aspect. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really wild. It's really, really wild. Tell us more about Dennis. Dennis, as in gentleman that I spoke of before. Oh, tell us more, Dennis. Yes, tell us more. How about Shooting Creek? And that's the thing about what we do here on this on this show. This is going to be interactive between us, myself behind the camera, in front of the camera, and you guys. And this is a conversation. So if there's things that you want to discuss, I can always send somebody a link to to come into studio, which ultimately makes you a guest. You're going to have a guest appearance on the show of Off the Beaten Path, which is fun. But, you know, and also while in the comments, when you leave comments describing specific things, um, we can go over that as well. And that's what makes this truly magical. This moment right here is magical for that one reason is that we can interact with each other. So while Dennis is coming up with what Shooting Creek is, we're going to keep going. So Bluegrass Songs also claim that the lights are the ghost of a slave searching for his master. An episode of The X-Files reasons that those lights are caused by UFOs. Popular Native American folklore says that the bloody battle between the Cherokee and the Chihuahua tribes took place on the mountain. Many lives were lost. The lights claim the legend are the ghosts of the grieving women still searching the mountainside for the bodies of the fallen warriors. <clears throat> but not every story of the Broughton Mound lights is steeped in superstition. So in, on July of 2016, a Charlotte observer reported that the Forest Service officers had reported close-up encounters on the mountain with beach ball-sized orbs that floated and then vanished. And in August of 2016, local TV stations WLOS reported that scientists from the Appalachian State University believed to have captured images of the Brown Mountain Lights on two digital video cameras. Those scientists have not been able to determine what causes the lights, ball lightning, or naturally occurring mountain gases are two widely accepted theories. So, you know, <clears throat> there are aspects of science that come into play when they talk about ball lightning and gases. But it seems that that's their, that's their answers for a lot of the un unexplained, right? We go into all these things of ball lightning and this and that, whatever the case may be, yada, yada, yada. But Truly, as an investigator, nine times out of ten when they're trying to cover it up with science, it's usually debunked halfway halfway down the story. So uh, let's keep going. And the next one, you know, I feel a lot of people will resonate with and we'll see. And I'm going to let you figure it out first before I tell you who it is. Can somebody tell me who or what this is? Well, if you guessed Mothman... You would be correct. So this is Mothman. And Mothman is one of the prevalent legends of Appalachia, for sure. And if you look at what Mothman looks like, he's a red-eyed, wings like a bat. You know, he looks almost like a demon creature or something that is absolutely 
just demonic looking, you know? But, so, let's get into the story, right? Back in 1966, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, located at a confluence of Ohio and the Kawaha Rivers, was a sleepy town of a couple thousand people. But it was rocked by an unidentified visitor on November 12, 1966, when gravediggers at the cemetery in Clandinan, West Virginia, about 80 miles from Point Pleasant, claimed to see a man with wings lift off from a tree and fly over their heads. Three days later, two young couples were driving together near an abandoned World War II TNT plant about five miles north of Point Pleasant. When they saw a large flying man with a 10-foot wingspan, eyes that glowed red, they tried to flee and reported 100 miles per hour. But the creature followed them and back to Point Pleasant city limits. They were so spooked that by their experience that when they directly went to the police, the newspapers dubbed this creature, you know, the Mothman. The national press picked up this story and Mothman became a sensation. When they went back to the police, the police took them seriously, but also some well, some of them didn't. Some of them laughed them off. But, you know, it's wild. This is a wild story that people were out there and people have seen Mothman for a very long time. Up to this day, up to last week, there was a story about Mothman. So a lot of these things that we're talking about are history and our oral traditions, but are still being cited today. And that's what makes them fascinating because it's not stopped. Man has so much that they can do to explore now. We have drones. We have vehicles that go by themselves into the woods. Yet these sightings keep happening when people walk into the woods, right? So there's a lot of fascination with Mothman. And Mothman, now that he's a sensation, is also in movies. We see movies talking about wood trails where a winged creature comes down and snatches people up in their sleeping bags, things like that. This is a fascinating tale. Fascinating. And like I said, we're just glancing over a lot of these right now because there's a couple to cover. And the next ones are my favorite because it leads to UFOs and things like that. But these traditions have been around since Native American tribes. And Native American tribes were a lot more in tune with what the earth did, which we would later rediscover within the European roots in Appalachia as well. Uh, but these traditions are so steeped with eyewitness accounts. And even it's not just one person by themselves sees these entities. This has happened at a town level, which is a multiple person experience, which brings longevity to what these people are saying. And it's, it's truly, truly remarkable. And now when we get into this next story, we're going to talk about two experiences that personally I have had over the last two weeks or the last three weeks, which involves sightings. And I have shared one of these sightings with my fiance. So it is a shared experience and she is not so much into what we're talking about today, but she knows that it's something that she cannot explain. So we're going to keep going as we go in. Mothman, you know, basically over a, over a week after the reporters and the newspapers and I got national coverage, eight more reported sightings in and around Point Pleasant 
of a man-like bird with large wings. One such account came from a volunteer firefighter, Captain Paul Yoder and Benjamin Enoch. According to the Gettysburg Times, Yoder and Enoch claimed to have seen a very large bird with red eyes. Others refuted sightings, believing that the residents of Point Pleasant were actually seeing Sandhill Creek and or Sandhill Crane that had wandered out into a normal migration route. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses, says Jeff Wamsley, owner of Point Pleasant Mountain Mothman Museum. Born and raised in town, Wamsley was only five years old when the Mothman showed up and began terrorizing his neighbors. Like I said, this is an account of multiple people seeing this at the same time. So over the following year, the oddities continued. Reports of UFOs and suspicious men in black began streaming into the Point Pleasant authorities. And the Mothman sightings continued. So now we're going to get into one of the more prevalent stories of it. Then, 10 days before Christmas, 1967, tragedy struck while the Silver Bridge that connected the Point Pleasant Gallipus, Ohio, was teeming with rush hour traffic. The bridge collapsed, killing 46 people. Reportedly, some claimed to have seen the Mothman at the bridge shortly before its collapse, and it's believed his presence was a harbinger of doom or an omen. So the fact that UFO sightings, men in black presence, and the Silver Ridge disaster all happening during the Mothman sightings intrigues many people, says Wamsley. It's a fascinating turn of events for a small town like Point Pleasant. Really, really wild. That is really wild. And, there, you know, there's no such thing as coincidence. And things are meant to happen. And I'm not saying that this is all, you know, meant to happen this way. But when we talk about what these mean to the people, they they have a resounding effect of fear. And when people are put into these places of fear, sometimes these, these stories can be perpetuated into blaming things like a bridge collapsing for Mothman and things like that. You know, what I do is when I investigate these things, I go into find these connections, but there has to be a process to it. And the process is always, we need to figure out why it happened, how it happened, and what people were looking at or seeing while it was happening. And when you put those three things together, it seems that there is a connection to Mothman. So as we move on to the next one, we're at about the halfway point for the show. And before we get to the next one, I just want to say a thank you to everybody who's out there listening. And uh, I was a little nervous coming on the first show. Every time you start a new show, it gets a little bit nerve wracking to make sure that you're doing what, you know, what the people want you to do and for things to, to be very, very uh, authentic and genuine to come off and give you the information that I have at hand. So I also want to give it a shout out to, to Amanda and everybody at Appalachian Memes for uh, accepting me and giving me this platform to really indulge in my investigations and go into some of the fringier topics. And, you know, it's really amazing when we can get everybody together. And on other episodes that we do, we're going to bring some of the uh, Appalachian memes people to come on with us and feel their thoughts and views on what we're doing and what we're talking about for those days. And, you know, I just really have a lot of respect for everybody, and I appreciate everybody so much 
for tuning in. And, you know, this means a lot to me. And I love exploring these regions and I love getting deep dives into stuff. So I hope we're, we're going to have a lot of fun together. And that's all, you know, that's all I can say at the moment. And we're going to keep going. Um, we're going to try and do this every either Thursday or Friday of every week. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're really going to deep dive into a lot of culture. Once we get to the cultural aspects, it's really going to be intriguing. And a lot of people are going to be able to connect with those cultures. And if you weren't connecting with that culture, maybe it'll give you an, an avenue to explore some of the cultures surrounding where you live. So, you know, I'm just trying to connect dots. And I love, love the fact that we're all here together. So let's keep going. And this, this specific story or legend that we're going to talk about next to me resonates <clears throat> because like i said of the experiences that i've had over the last i want to say three weeks one happened in new york where i live and one happened in texas so it's not just the place where i was it has to do with me and it's i've talked to quite a few people about it and it's been you know it's been really wild to try and figure out what's going on so the next legend that we're going to talk about is the moon-eyed people. And just to show you what the moon-eyed people look like, this, as you can see, before we go into the story, it looks like they have spears. It looks like they have big eyes. And it also looks like they, they are the ETs that were extraterrestrials that we see all over the mainstream. They look like gray aliens just to put a correlation together, right? So with this, you would expect that these stories that we're going to discuss come with, you know, craft in the sky with lights that they couldn't explain. This is sort of an encompassing story. It kind of gives all the aspects of everything else that we talked about before into one. So Let's go into who the Moon-Eyed people are and what this story comes from. So, according to Cherokee legend, and I actually have investigated a lot of the Native American tribes around New York, around Appalachia, and we're going to go into some of those stories as well on other episodes and some of those cultures because they are ultimately exciting. So, the legend, long ago before the Cherokee moved into the Smokies, there was a small race. Uh, there was a race of small, bearded white men who lived in the mountains, according to an author, Julia Montgomery Street, whose tale of this mysterious race is displayed in the Cherokee County Historical Museum. The men possessed all the land from the Little Tennessee River to the Kentucky to to Kentucky with a line of fortification from one end of their domain to the other the men who lived in rounded log cabins had large blue eyes and fair white skin and were sun blind during the day emerging from their homes only at night to hunt fish and wage war and build their fortifications because they could only see in the dark. The Cherokee called them the moon-eyed people. Some believe they were descendants of a small group of Welshmen who came to America long before the Spanish and settled in the Smoky Mountains around 1170. 
As the legend goes, the Moon-Eyed people eventually abandoned their home and were driven from it and traveled west, never to be seen again. A woman by the name of Wanda Stalkup is the director of the Cherokee County Historical Museum in Murphy, North Carolina. The museum is a home to a statue that was found at the confluence of the valley of the Hawassi Rivers in the in the early 1800s. <laughs> the soapstone statue is 37 inches tall and weighs 300 pounds. Many believe it is a depiction of the Moon-Eyed people. Everyone has their own opinion about the statue, says Stalkup. The statue depicts twins, but they're short like the moon-eyed people with little round flat faces. Some believe that the statue represents the two rivers and others believe it is a man and a woman. When archaeologists came and looked at the statue, they said they've never seen anything that compares to it. That's what Stalkov said. One reason is because they are standing, not sitting or kneeling, and they think it might even be pre-Cherokee. So whether or not this small blue-eyed race of sun-blind white men once inhabited the Blue Ridge long before the Europeans in America remains to be seen. The legend continues to live on. Now, one of the reasons why I say that this is sort of what it, it kind of falls in line with some of the things that I've seen over the last three weeks. I did a presentation on the Iroquois at an event that we did that was 55 speakers over five days. Um, we will be actually on Appalachian Memes. Uh, we will every time we do events. We're going to be first off. We're going to be starting to do events for Appalachian Memes as well, with uh, Manda involved and everybody involved. We're going to put stuff together and try and bring you guys content that you want. Also, we have other events that we're going to be doing, exploring histories and getting experts and things like that. But I did it on the Iroquois. And one of the things that is truly fascinating is the Iroquois people or the Mohawk people specifically within the Iroquois nation and the Cherokee people have so many similarities in their culture. The linguistics, the linguistics are just about the same. Their folklores are the same. It, it would lead anybody who does research to believe that they either had a common ancestor or that they generated their societies from, a, from the same place or one society that broke maybe into two. They talk about little people in the Iroquois as well. While they're not moon-eyed people, they are fair-skinned. And when we look at the picture that I just put up, and we're going to look at it one more time just to bring it home a little bit, those look like aliens. If you could say whatever you want, but my eyes, they look like aliens. And while getting this presentation ready, and this is where the correlation goes between the moon-eyed people, aliens, and the Iroquois or Native American tribes. While getting this presentation ready for this big event that we did with 55 speakers over five days, outside, I went outside to smoke a cigarette, me and my fiance. We looked up and we saw what looked to be some, a light that was as, 
big as a star, so you could tell how small it was. It looked to be a star. Then, from a stationary position, it started to move. Okay? And as it started to move, it all of a sudden was moving in a straight line. And if you see how high up it was, usually planes don't fly that high. It looked it could possibly be a satellite. But a satellite doesn't move that fast. It meanders across the skyline. And then uh, in, in a moment's notice, it was gone. This was before that event. So now, come to two weeks ago. Two weeks after the event, I'm in Texas. The night sky looks huge, visiting family. And, you know, it gets really, really wild because I look up. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, Texas time, there is that same light that looks like a star. And it doesn't. It actually looks smaller than the stars because the stars are bigger in Texas. And then it goes one way very fast, and then it goes another. And then it's gone again. So for me, I do a lot of meditation. I, I you know. I believe in God and, and do my meditation and prayer and things like that. So what it seems like to me was before this event that we did that was called Total Disclosure, where we discussed a lot of anomalies that are, you know, um, that are where the Native Americans and, and uh, galactical history come involved. It's very nuanced, right? But this was sort of like a head nod. And. The fact that we were, that I was doing this Iroquois presentation, and they also spoke of something that was like the moon-eyed people, led me to believe that there is a connection between what's going on up there, what's going on down here, and the stories of old. So when we look at all these stories that we're talking about, there is a connection. We just have to find it. We need to explore it, and we need to figure out where it is that we as human beings ultimately come from. They say that a man or woman who doesn't know where it comes from is a man or woman who's lost. And somewhere within the fables and the, and the legends and the stories, there are truths and we need to figure out what they are. There's more than meets the eye and there's a lot more things possible within this life than some may give credence to. So, you know, it's, it's a really wild concept, but I really think that it was, it was it was extraterrestrials or otherworldly entities saying, keep doing what you're doing. You're exploring things and it's ultimately good. And then after the fact, they said it was, you know, they came to me almost like it was a success. And, you know, it, you could take from it what you want. But I truly believe that there is a connection between all of what happened and what I did. So now, as we keep going, we're going to we're going to talk about. Two more. This I have. I actually have about six more, but we're going to keep this to one hour tonight. But I have two more that are a little bit more commonly known, and they're a little bit more. Well, one of them is a little bit more human in nature, right? While it's still a little bit supernatural, it is human in nature, and. This one, to me, is probably one of the more scarier ones. I mean, if I came up face-to-face -face with Bigfoot, I'd try and take a picture. If I saw the moon-eyed people, I would try and, get, and make contact and say, hey, how you doing? You know, 
But this next one, I might pick up and haul ass out of there if I met this. So we're going to take a sip of coffee, and then we're going to get into it. So this is not only, like I said, paranormal. This one is scary as hell. So I'm pretty sure a lot of you know who this is. And if you don't, don't worry. I'm going to tell you. I'm definitely going to tell you. So we know that this woman to be the Bell Witch. And there is a Bell Witch haunting. So we're going to go over this now. And that's we it starts with John and Lucy Bell were farmers who settled in Adams, Tennessee, around 1803. They lived peacefully on their land until 1817, when the family began experiencing odd and unexplainable occurrences in their home. They began hearing noises and such as scratches, knocks on the wall, chains being dragged across the floor, says Pat Fitzhugh, an author and historian who has written two books about the events that occurred on the Bell Farm. Over time, the noises became intense and more frequent. Then the Bell's two daughters began complaining of something, trying to pull at their bed covers, pinch them while they sleep. So, for over a year, the Bell's remained silent about the strange events taking place in their home. Let's just stop right there. Full stop. If we look at what society was in the beginning of the 1800s, for these people to come out and say that they're either being haunted or that something is going on that they can't explain, it's not as if they did it now. They would have been persecuted. They would have been maybe sentenced to death or stoned or called demons. There was. It, that's why this story took a while to come out because the history of what this is and the occurrences that are happening, if they were to come out back then when they lived, there could be some severe consequences for them and their family. So it's very difficult to look at these and say, you know, they should have just said something. They should have just came out and it's life is different back then. Not to mention, the only thing, they, it wasn't as much going on in the ways of newspapers or the internet. Everything was word of mouth. So they were, they were up for a lot of ridicule and judgment because everything was word of mouth. So everything was probably spoken of with a moniker of what that person's opinion was of the story. So it's, very, it's, it's just a very difficult time for these people to come out and tell people about this. So worried about the members of their church might think, but the harassment wouldn't stop. And John Bell finally confided to one of his neighbors about the strange incidents in his home. His neighbor came over and experienced some of the same kind of disturbances. Before long, people all over the East and Southeast knew about it, said Fitzhugh, which is rare. And this shows you that the Appalachian culture and the people of Appalachia, especially in Tennessee, are different. They're different. Society, if this was Boston, Massachusetts, and this story came out, they probably would have been heralded a witch and burned at the stake. So this also shows this, this hospitality that the Appalachian people have. And 
that's why I said what I said before, because I wanted you to see what it would normally be like. But this instance, it wasn't like that all at first. It really wasn't. So getting back to the story. And I'm going to put the picture up again so you can see who we're talking about, because this is a crude description of what she supposedly looked like. So. Now, people began traveling to Bell Farm to experience the supernatural phenomena for themselves. Some came as curiosity seekers and some came as skeptics trying to debunk what the bells are experiencing. Over time, it seems this thing, whatever it was, fed off of attention and people's fears. It eventually developed a whispering voice, and within a year it could speak. People have written down and passed through the generation accounts of what this thing was allegedly saying. It liked to argue religion and make fun of people, except for Mrs. Bell. It stated its purpose was to kill John Bell. Crazy. This gets crazy, right? Like, <clears throat> you're talking about a specific entity coming through all the time. So, let's keep going. Seven years later, Kate did return, visiting John Bell. Oh, I apologize. I missed I missed I missed a portion. Let's go back. The poltergeist received the name Kate after it claimed to be the witch of a local lady named Kate Batts. When John Bell died on December twentieth, nineteen eighty, Kate took credit, insisting she poisoned him because he was a bad man. After John Bell's death, Things began to return to normal on the Bell Farm until Betsy Bell, the youngest daughter, became engaged to a local man named Joshua Gardner. Kate reavowed her scorn and disapproval about Betsy Bell's upcoming marriage. She talked to Betsy into breaking off the engagement with Joshua. A short time later, the poltergeist said she was going to leave, but promised to return in seven years. Now. We, we were talking about something that was happening from a very long time, very long time. And it started in the 1800s to work this way all the way up to the 1900s, right? So as we keep going, this gets even weirder, right? So seven years later, Kate did return visiting John Bell or John Bell Jr. Sorry who was not living at the Bell Farm at the time. They allegedly talked for three nights about the past, the present, and the future. After that, the Bell Witch did bid farewell and promised to return 107 years later. That would have been 1935. Some said she returned, and some said she didn't. The real story behind the tale of the Bell Witch has never been uncovered. Some thought it was an act of supernatural. Skeptics accused the Bell family of doing it by knowing how to act and using ventriloquism, and some thought they did it for money. But the Bell family never charged a cent to anyone staying over in their home. Wow. So, again, this story transcends 200 years. Because even today, <clears throat> there is people who pass down this oral story and it's 
prevalent in this area. Like these stories keep stuff alive. Like this, this is a really fascinating tale. And there are people out there who investigate the paranormal. So what I would love to do is find this area or this land and try and communicate with that, with that entity and try and get information from her. Who knows what would happen, right? But it would be fun to experience that for sure. And I'm, I'm an investigator, so I, I don't scare easy either. So I might, you know, we may find a way to get out there. But I know Tennessee is also a very big area for paranormal activity. It's said that Tennessee is on a ley line. And if you don't know what a ley line is, a ley line is a grid system that goes over the entire world where energies uh, of supernatural energies can either enter this reality, leave this reality, but it gives them energy to stay on those lines. It's centers of energies all over the United States and everywhere else. So as crazy as this is, we also have the last one we're going to be doing tonight. And we do have quite a few more that we're going to talk about. Maybe the next time we have the devil monkey, the Dewayo, the, Sna the Snallygaster, the uh, Black Panther, and the Snarly Yo. So it's, uh, you know, I do know Josh Turner at Paranormal Roundtable. Yes, I do. And uh, I actually share a lot of my stuff to that, to that specific group as well. But I know he has touched on some of this too, and he's very versed in, in that area. So, you know, one of the things that really excites me about this specific, uh, this specific style story is that there's not only a supernatural element to it, they say that she's a witch. And that being said, the fact that she's a witch is crazy because there's so much more that could be going on there, right? And we can go into it all. We could talk about a lot. Of it. We're going to go into the next one before we have, you know, any anything else going on here. But I'm just sharing this to Full Spectrum Universe page. We also have a page for Full Spectrum Universe. And we have a YouTube channel as well. So if you guys want to hear more about not specifically this stuff, but of history and of cultures, I do a lot of different shows on Full Spectrum Universe. You can also catch those events that we were talking about earlier. So uh, I will put up the actual Full Spectrum Universe, um, the uh, page that you can go to on YouTube to see more. And I'll share it in the chat here so people can go and get that if they want to. Or subscribe, please. That would be great. We're trying to get over 1,000 by the end of the month. And uh, we appreciate it if, if that, if, you know, if we can have you go in and subscribe. But... <clears throat> So on to the last one. What we're going to do is we're going to put the picture up and see if you know what it is. This one looks a little strange, right? And also it looks like, the, to me, this looks like an alien entity and a UFO in the back. So let's get into what this might be. They call this the Flatwoods Monster, right? In the late days of summer. 1952, two brothers named Edward and Fred May of Flatwoods, West Virginia, rushed home to tell their mother, Kathleen, that they'd seen something unexplainable while playing football at a playground of the Flatwoods schools. They witnessed a bright UFO streak across the sky 
and the land on the property of a local farmer. Intrigued, May, her sons, and some other local boys headed out to the farm. It was nearing dusk when they saw an unidentified object in the woods. They saw an odd-shaped thing appear to be glowing red with smoke and streaming and steam coming off of the actual craft, says Andrew Smith, an executive director of the Braxton County CVB and curator of the Flatwoods Monster Museum. 17-year-old Eugene Lemon, a National Guardsman who also tagged along on the adventure, said he saw a pulsing light and pointed his flashlight towards it, revealing a pair of bright eyes in the tree and a 10-foot monster with a blood-red face and green body that seemed to glow. Now, let's hold off a second. If you were to see a entity with a bright red face or a blood red face and a green body and behind him in the distance is a craft what would you do what would you do this is a, this is a wild story and it's funny because if you look at the correlation between other Alien encounters or UFO encounters where the entities had either come out of the craft or the persons came in contact with the entities, we see a correlation, not so much on the coloring, but what happens, right? Especially on a lot of farm regions where aliens seem to land and things like that. It, I would run like hell sometimes too, but what what might happen? And I'm going to be honest here. Yeah, that's that's right, Dennis. Dennis said he would need clean, need clean shorts. That you know what? That might be true. But I think my curiosity might run out, and I would dart in one direction for maybe a couple seconds, and then say, "Hold up, hold up! I got to go back and check this out. I got to ask questions. I got to see if I can communicate with it." And my my journalistic integrity would definitely come to the forefront and be like, "Hey." Hey, tell me all about yourself. What the hell is that thing you're flying on? And and can we be friends? That would be my instinct, I think. But that's always great to say. And until you're in that situation, you never really know. But I'm going to tell you that that's exactly how I feel I would act. So, and that's in my imagination. So I'm, you guys got to let me have that one. But let's go a little bit further. So now, according to a newspaper report, several party... Uh, several of the party fainted and vomited for several hours after returning home. I've heard this about radiation sickness from these entities and their crafts as well. So Mrs. May was quoted as saying the monster looked worse than Frankenstein. Let's keep going. The group turned and ran down the hill, immediately reporting that they saw to the local sheriff. An hour later, several armed men with shotguns returned to the scene with Lemon. They were met with a horrible smell. And according to local reports, they saw slight heat waves in the air. Authorities didn't find much, says Smith. What was found was gathered and sent to Washington, D.C. and never seen again. Of course it was never seen again. How typical. How typical. Just like as of late when we were asking the, not to get political, but 
<clears throat> we were waiting for this long list of disclosure events that, you know, the people that ran the country were going to let us know. That was a big nothing burger too, right? I mean, really. We were all waiting for a tremendous disclosure. And that's one of the reasons why we did that five-day, 55-speaker event. Because if we wait for the powers that be to give us the answers of what our investigations are leading to, we'll never get any answers, right? So I digress. Smith says that what makes the Flatwood Monster so interesting is that there weren't many UFO sightings back in the 1950s. The Flatwoods incident was the only the second or third of its kind and probably the first with so many witnesses it's an and it it make national headlines right so we know that these experiences while they're one offs or people see them right and they seem to be that one person sees it one you know or it's not as credible and i'm not saying that we don't believe those people but the credibility jumps exponentially when an entire town witnesses an event like this. This can be seen as a corroborating story. And what that means is that everybody's reality is, is sent through their perception, right? So everybody's reality is different. Our perception is what develops what our reality is. So everybody seeing the same thing is going to tell you a different story of how it was seen. But with this particular case, so many people saw the same thing. And that is the moniker of truth. And you have to say that there is truth in that story because of so many eyewitness accounts. There's only so many eyewitness accounts that have to be made before we can find a commonality between all of them and see the truth behind the story, right? So this was a look today into some of the more prevalent stories and legends and just skimming the surface. We're, what we're going to do over the next coming weeks, and maybe not right away, but we're going to sprinkle them in there here and there, is we're going to explore deep dives into other accounts of what we're talking about today. And that's another thing again. Please contact Appalachian Memes via a message. If you have a story that you want to tell, I'll be more than happy to sit down with you and either bring your story here on air or let you come on the air and tell your story. Because eyewitness accounts of the Appalachian people is what we're trying to do and is what we're trying to get to the bottom of. We're also going to be exploring cultures, histories, uh, possibilities, Things that really, you know, aren't confirmed, but are, right? So with that being said, guys, I want to thank all of you for joining me tonight. We're going to do this again next week, same time, same place. Love all of you. Love each other. And if anybody has any questions about anything that I've discussed tonight, I can always send you information. Just contact Appalachian Memes. And, yeah, we're going to keep getting to the bottom of stuff, guys. So thank you all so much. I hope everybody has a lovely, lovely evening and a lovely weekend. I'll see you next week. Love and light. And hopefully that intention carries you through your day. So I'm Rob Yox. This has been Full Spectrum Universe Presents. What is it? What is it? Off the beaten path. That's right. So, guys, thank you. And we'll see you all next week. Have a great evening.